Okay, today we will be doing energy conservation in photosynthesis, CO2 assimilation. Chapter 7 showed how chloroplast conserves light energy by converting it to reducing potential in the form of NADPH and ATP. In this chapter, attention is focused on how CO2 enters the leaf and subsequently is reduced through the utilization of the NADPH and ATP produced by photosynthetic electron transport. Air is the source of CO2 for photosynthesis. Gas exchange between the leaf and the surrounding air is dependent upon diffusion and is controlled by the opening and closing of special pores called stomata. Stomatal movements are very sensitive to external environmental factors such as light, CO2, water status, and temperature. The reactions involved in the reduction of CO2 have been traditionally designated dark reactions of photosynthesis, but this designation is quite misleading since it implies that they can proceed in the absence of light. However, several critical enzymes in the carbon reduction cycle are light activated. In the dark, they're either inactive or exhibit low activity. Consequently, carbon reduction cannot occur in the dark, even if energy could be made available from some source other than the photochemical reactions. Only a few decades ago, knowledge of carbon metabolism was in its infancy and, as to be expected when opening up new areas of study, understanding of the process was somewhat unsophisticated. Photosynthesis and respiration, long recognized as the two major divisions of carbon metabolism, were thought to be separate and independent metabolic processes neatly compartmentalized in the cell. Photosynthesis was located in the chloroplasts, while respiration appeared restricted to the cytoplasm in the mitochondrion. The task of photosynthesis was to reduce carbon and store it as sugars or starch. When required, these storage products could be mobilized and exported to the mitochondrion where they were oxidized to satisfy the energy and carbon needs of the cell through respiration. Thus, the relationship between photosynthesis and respiration appeared simple and uncomplicated. Over the past 40 years, however, knowledge and understanding of carbon metabolism has improved considerably, and with that, so has the apparent complexity. Photosynthetic carbon metabolism can no longer be explained by a single invariable cycle. It is no longer restricted to just the chloroplast or even to a single cell. In addition to carbon reduction, photosynthetic energy is used to drive nitrogen assimilation, sulfate reduction, and other aspects of intermediate metabolism. The rate of photosynthesis is influenced, even controlled, by events occurring outside the chloroplast and elsewhere in the plant. These and other complexities of metabolic integration within the cell and between different parts of the plant are only beginning to become obvious. One thing is certain, a more holistic approach to carbon metabolism is called for. The traditional compartmentalized version of independent processes no longer adequately explains carbon metabolism in plants. This chapter will describe several interrelated variations of photosynthetic carbon metabolism in higher plants, including leaf gas exchange through stomatal pores that provide an efficient mechanism for the absorption of CO2 along a shallow concentration gradient, the path of carbon energetics and regulation of the photosynthetic carbon reduction cycle, or C3 metabolism, the pathway that all organisms ultimately use to assimilate carbon, and photorespiration and how limitations are imposed on carbon assimilation in C3 plants by the photosynthetic carbon oxidation cycle. Later chapters will address carbon partitioning, respiratory carbon metabolism, and factors influencing the distribution of carbon throughout the plant as well as the ecological significance of C4 and CAM, or Crossleucian acid metabolism photosynthesis. Stomatal complex controls leaf gas exchange and water loss.
Now we have a couple pictures here. We can see what looks like an electron microscope version of stomata. So an elliptic type is in a lower epidermis of a zebrina plant. And in the picture, the stoma is open. And in the another picture, the graminaceous type from the adaxal surface of maize, zea maize, leaf, and you can see the stomata closed. So here we've got an image of guard cells and subsidiary cells, as well as the stoma, and how it looks in open versus closed position. The epidermis of leaves contain pores that provide for the exchange of gases between the internal air spaces and the ambient environment. The opening, or stoma, is bordered by a pair of unique cells called guard cells. In most cases, the guard cells, in turn, are surrounded by specialized differentiated epidermal cells called subsidiary cells. The stoma, together with its bordering guard cells and subsidiary cells, is referred to as the stomatal complex or stomatal apparatus. The distinguishing feature of the stomatal complex is the pair of guard cells that functions as a hydraulically operated valve. Guard cells take up water and swell to open the pore when CO2 is required for photosynthesis and lose water to close the pore when CO2 is not required or when water stress overrides the photosynthetic needs of the plant. The mechanical, physiological, and biochemical properties of the guard cells have attracted scholars since almost their first occurrence reported by M. Mal Malpighi in the late 17th century. A continuing interest in stomatal movement is understandable, given the foremost importance of stomata in regulating gas exchange and consequent effects on photosynthesis and productivity. More than 90% of the CO2 and water vapor exchanged between a plant and its environment passes through stomata. Stomata are therefore involved in controlling two very important but competing processes, uptake of CO2 for photosynthesis and, as discussed in Chapter 2, transpirational water loss. It is important, therefore, to take into account a stomatal function when considering photosynthetic productivity and crop yields. Or if you would like to build a biological spaceship, because I think that's more of what I'm interested in, but, <laughs> but that's a very silly thought, isn't it? More recently, additional interest in stomatal function has been prompted by recognition that airborne pollutants such as ozone, O3, and sulfur dioxide, SO2, also enter the leaf through open stomata. Stomata are found in leaves of virtually all higher plants, angiosperms and gymnosperms, and most lower plants, mosses and ferns, with the exception of submerged aquatic plants and the liverworts. In angiosperms and gymnosperms, they are found on most aerial parts, including non-leafy structures such as floral parts and stems, although they may be non-functional in some cases. The frequency and distribution of stomata is quite variable and depends on a number of factors, including species, leaf position, ploidy level, the number of chromosome sets, and growth conditions. A frequency in the range of 20 to 400 stomata in millime per millimeter of leaf service is representative, although frequencies of 1,000 millimeters negative 2 or more have been reported. That's a very cumbersome way of saying that. A thousand stoma per millimeter? Yeah, squared. Although there are exceptions to every rule, the leaves of herbaceous monocots such as grasses usually contain stomata on both the adaxal, upper, and abaxal, lower, surfaces with roughly equal frequency. 
Stomata occur on both the upper and lower surfaces of herbaceous dicots leaves, but the frequency is usually lower on the upper surface. Most woody dicots and tree species have stomata only on the lower leaf surface, while floating leaves of aquatic plants, or like the water lily, have stomata only on the upper surface. In most cases, the stomata are randomly scattered across the leaf surface, although in monocots with parallel veined leaves, the stomata are arranged in linear arrays between the veins. The most striking feature of the stomatal complex is a pair of guard cells that border the pore. These specialized epidermal cells have the capacity to undergo reversible turgor changes that in turn regulate the size of the aperture between them. When the guard cells are fully turgid, the aperture is open, and when flaccid, the aperture is closed. While there are many variations on the theme, anatomically we recognize two basic types of guard cells, the graminaceous type and the elliptic type. Elliptic or kidney-shaped guard cells are so-called because of the elliptic shape of the opening. In surface view, these guard cells remember, resemble a pair of kidney beans with their concave sides opposed. In cross-section, the cells are roughly circular in shape with a ventral wall bordering the pit and a dorsal wall adjacent to the surrounding epidermal cells. The mature guard cell has characteristic wall thickenings, mainly along the outer and inner margins of the ventral wall. These thickenings extend into one or two ledges that protect the throat of the stoma. In some plants, particularly the, the gymnosperms and aquatic species, the inner ledge may be small or absent. The outer ledge appears to be an architectural adaptation that helps to prevent the penetration of liquid water from the outside into the substomal airspace, which would otherwise have disastrous consequences for gas exchange. The graminaceous type of guard cell is largely restricted to members of the graminae family and certain other monocots, like palms. Often described as dumbbell-shaped, the graminaceous type guard cells have thin-walled bulbous ends that contain most of the cell organelles. The handle of the dumbbell is characterized by walls thickened towards the lumen. The pore in this case is typically an elongated slit. The guard cells are flanked by two prominent subsidiary cells. CO2 enters the leaf by diffusion. Diffusion of CO2 into the leaf through the stoma is more efficient than would be predicted on the basis of stomatal area alone. A fully open stomatal pore typically measures 5 to 15 microns wide and about 20 microns long. The combined pore area of open stomata thus amounts to no more than 0.5 to 2% of the total area of the leaf. Since leaves contain no active pumps, all the CO2 taken into the leaf for photosynthesis must enter by diffusion through these extremely small pores. One might think that diffusion through such a limited area would be extremely restricted, Yet it's been calculated that the rate of CO2 uptake by an actively photosynthesizing leaf may approach 70% of the rate over absorbing surface with an area equivalent to that of the entire leaf. This extraordinarily high diffusive efficiency appears to be related to the special geometry of gaseous diffusion through small pores. The high efficiency of gaseous diffusion through stomata can be demonstrated experimentally by measuring CO2 diffusion into a container of CO2 absorbing agent, such as sodium hydroxide. The container is covered with a thin membrane perforated with pores of known dimensions. Diffusions of CO2 through the membrane can be measured as the amount of carbonate present in the sodium hydroxide solution after, for example, one hour. It was discovered that the rate of CO2 diffusion through a perforated membrane varies in proportion to the diameter of the pores, not the area. 
How can these results be reconciled with Fick's law, which states that the rate of diffusion equals V, which equals diameter times area, or dc dx, where dc dx is the concentration gradient over which diffusion occurs? Clearly, the rate of diffusion is directly proportional to the surface area A and the concentration gradient dc dx. The physical explanation for this paradox lies in the pattern of diffusive flow as the gases enter and exit the stomatal pore. This is important because we are all very concerned with Fick's law, but I don't know if we've ever talked about diffusion efficiency as a mechanism of the shape of stomata. Note that in the aperture itself, i.e. the throat of the stoma, CO2 molecules can flow only straight through and diffusion is proportional to the cross-sectional area of the throat as predicted by Fick's law of diffusion. But when the gas molecules pass through the aperture into the substomatal cavity, they can spill over the edge of the pore. The additional diffusive capacity contributed by spillover is proportional to the amount of edge or the perimeter of the pore. Because the area of the pore decreases by the square of the radius, while perimeter varies directly with diameter, that's just the definition of area and perimeter, the relative contribution of the perimeter effect increases as the pore size decreases. Thus, in very small pores, for example, the size of stomata, the bulk of the gas movement is accounted for by diffusion over the perimeter. Even this effect is exaggerated with respect to stomata. Because of their elliptical shape, the ratio of perimeter to area is greater than for circular pores. Maybe it's like um, energy capturing in hydraulics, you know, like baffle plates. So instead of energy, it would be the surface area in contact with the air, just like a baffle plate. How is a high concentration gradient for CO2 established and maintained? To ensure a constant diffusion of CO2 from the air into the leaf, the CO2 concentration within the substomatal cavity and leaf air spaces must be less than the CO2 concentration in the air above the leaf. This CO2 concentration gradient, dcdx, is established because in the light, chloroplasts continuously fix CO2. That is, chloroplasts within the leaf mesophyll cells continuously convert gaseous CO2 into a stable non-gaseous molecule 3 phosphoglycerate, PGA, through the reductive pentose phosphate cycle. Thus, this biochemical cycle constantly removes CO2 from intracellular air spaces of a leaf, thereby ensuring that the internal leaf CO2 concentration is less than the ambient CO2 concentrations in the light. In the dark, photosynthesis stops, but respiration generates CO2 such that the internal leaf CO2 concentrations are greater than the ambient CO2 concentrations and thus CO2 diffuses out of a leaf in the dark. The rate of CO2 evolution from a leaf in the dark is a measure of the rate of a leaf mitochondrial respiration. The above arguments, of course, represent an ideal situation. In reality, the stomatal pore itself is not the only barrier to gaseous diffusion between the leaf and its environment. A number of other factors, such as unstirred air layer on the leaf surface, and the aqueous path between the airspace and the chloroplast offer resistance to the uptake of CO2 into the leaf and complicate the actual situation. Nonetheless, the stomata are remarkably efficient structures. They permit very high rates of CO2 absorption without which photosynthesis would be severely limited. This creates a paradox. 
A system that is efficient for the uptake of CO2 is also efficient for the loss of water vapor from the internal surfaces of the leaf. Thus, the principal functional advantage offered by the stomatal apparatus is an ability to conserve water by closing the pore when CO2 is not required for photosynthesis or when water stress overrides the leaf's photosynthetic needs. How do stomata open and close? This question may be answered by first asking what mechanical forces are involved in guard cell movement. The driving force for stomatal opening is known to be the osmotic uptake of water by the guard cells and the consequent increase in hydrostatic pressure. The result is a deformation of the opposing cells that increase the size of the opening between them. In the case of an elliptic guard cells, the thickened walls become concave, while in the dumbbell-shaped cells, the handles that separate remain parallel. Stomatal closure follows a loss of water and the consequent decrease in hydrostatic pressure and relaxation of the guard cell walls. Deformation of elliptic guard cells during opening is due to the unique structural arrangement of the guard cell walls. In normal cells, bands of cellulose microfibrils encircle the cell at right angles to the long axis of the cell. Studies with polarized light and electron microscopy have demonstrated that the microfibrils in the guard cell walls are oriented in radial fashion, fanning out from the central region of the ventral wall. Additional microfibrils are arranged longitudinally within the ventral wall thickenings, cross-linking with the radial bands and restricting the expansion along the ventral wall. When the guard cells take up water, expansion follows the path of least resistance, which is to push the relatively thin dorsal walls outward into the neighboring epidermal cells. This causes the cells to arch along the ventral surface and form the stomatal opening. The dumbbell-shaped guard cells of the grasses also depend on the osmotic uptake of water, but operate in a slightly different way. In this case, the bulbous ends of the cells push against each other as they swell, driving the central handles apart in parallel and widening the pore between them. What controls stomatal opening and closure? To answer this question, it's necessary instead to ask what regulates the osmotic properties of the guard cells. This question has proven difficult to answer, partly because so many factors seem to be involved and partly because it's been difficult to study guard cell metabolism free of complications introduced by the surrounding epidermal and mesophyll cells. This problem has been partially resolved by studying guard cell behavior in peeled strips of epidermal cells. More recently, techniques for preparation of guard cell protoplasts have come, become available, making it possible to study guard cell metabolism and ion movement in isolation. Over the years, a variety of mechanisms have been offered to explain changing osmotic concentrations of guard cells. Most have centered on the observation that guard cells normally contain chloroplasts and were assumed to be photosynthetically competent. One way or another, it was proposed that an accumulation of photosynthetic product, sugars and other small molecules, contributed directly to the observed osmotic changes in the guard cells. While it is true that most guard cells do have chloroplasts, the number of chloroplasts varies considerably. As well, the guard cells of some species, for example, some orchids and variegated re regions of pelargonium, 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 have no chloroplasts but remain fully functional. Furthermore, investigators have been unable to detect significant levels of rubisco, the principal carbon-fixing enzyme, in the guard cells of at least 20 species leading to the conclusion that the carbon-fixing portion of photosynthesis does not operate in the guard cell. The conclusion is inescapable. 
photosynthetic carbon metabolism cannot be invoked as a general mechanism to explain guard cell movement. In the late 1960s, it became evident that potassium levels are very high in open guard cells and very low in closed guard cells. A variety of techniques, including electron microprobes and histochemical methods specific for potassium, have confirmed that the potassium plus content of closed guard cells is low compared with that of surrounding subsidiary and epidermal cells. Upon opening, large amounts of potassium move from the subsidiary epidermal cells into the guard cells. Consequently, an accumulation of potassium in guard cells is now accepted as the universal process in stomata opening, which is very similar to neurons, right? So the electron fire depends on a difference in potassium versus sodium concentration gradients. This work gave rise to the current hypothesis that the osmotic potential of guard cells and consequently the size of the stomatal opening is determined by the extent of potassium accumulation in the guard cells. Although we lack a thorough understanding of, of the mechanisms involved, available information about guard cell metabolisms and stomatal movements is summarized in the general model represented in figure 8.5 on page 134. It's widely accepted that accumulation of ions by most plant cells is driven by an ATP-powered proton pump located on the plasma membrane. Two lines of evidence indicate that potassium uptake by stromatal guard fit cells fits this general mechanism. First, the fungal toxin fusicosin, which is known to stimulate active proton extrusion by the pump, stimulates stomatal opening. Second, vanadate, which inhibits the proton pump, also inhibits stomatal opening. This constitutes reasonably good evidence that proton extrusion is one of the initial events in stomatal opening. By removing positively charged ions, proton extrusion would tend to hyperpolarize the plasma membrane, i.e. lower the electrical potential inside the cell relative to outside, as well as establish a pH gradient. Hyperpolarization is thought to open the K-channels in the membrane, which then allows passive uptake of potassium in response to the potential difference or charge gradient across the membrane. In order to maintain electrical neutrality, excess potassium ion accumulated in the cells must be balanced by a counter ion carrying a negative charge. According to the model shown in figure 8.5, charge balance is achieved partly by balancing potassium uptake against proton extrusion partly by an influx of chloride ion and partly by production within the cell of organic anions such as malate. In most species, malate production probably accounts for the bulk of required counter ion, while in others such as corn, CNAs, as much as 40% of the potassium moving into the cell is accompanied by chloride. In those few species whose guard cells lack chloroplast or starch, chloride is probably the predominant counter ion. In addition to its role maintaining charge balance, the accumulation of malate also helps to maintain cellular pH during solute accumulation. Proton extrusion would tend to deplete the intracellular proton concentration and increase cellular pH. However, because malate is an organic anion, each carboxyl group, COO negative, accumulated releases one proton into the cytosol. The synthesis of malate therefore tends to replenish the supply of protons lost by extrusion and maintain cellular pH at normal levels. The evidence for malate as a counter ion is quite strong. To begin with, malate levels in guard cells of open stomata are five to six times that of closed stomata. Second, guard cells contain high levels of the enzyme 
phosphoenolpyruvate carboxylase. Phosphoenolpyruvate carboxylase, or PEP case, which catalyzes the formation of malate. Third, there is a decrease in the starch content of open stomata that correlates with the amount of malate formed. Finally, factors that influence stomatal opening and closure also influence the activity of PEP case. For example, fusicosin, which induces stomatal opening, also causes an increase in both malate concentration and the activity of PEP case. Conversely, the plant hormone abscisic acid, which normally induces stomatal closure, antagonizes the effect of fusicosin. The effect of fusicosin is to stimulate the phosphorylation of PEP case, a process well known to activate a variety of enzymes and other proteins in the cell. The accumulation of potassium chloride and malate in the vacuoles of the guard cells would lower both the osmotic potential and the water potential of the guard cells. The consequent uptake of water would increase the turgor and cause stomata to open. At present, this remains a working model for stomatal opening since many of the details have yet to be verified experimentally. Stomatal closure has not received the same attention that opening has, but it is generally assumed that closure is affected by a simple reversal of the events leading to opening. On the other hand, the rate of closure is often too rapid to be accounted for simply by a passive leakage of ions from the guard cells, leading to the suggestion that other specific metabolic pumps are responsible for actively extruding ions upon closure. One possibility is that signals for stomatal closure stimulate the uptake of calcium into the cytosol. Calcium 2 plus uptake would depolarize the membrane, thus initiating a chain of events that includes opening anion channels to allow the for the release of chloride and malate. According to this scenario, a loss of anions would further depolarize the membrane, opening potassium channels and allowing the passive diffusion of potassium into the adjacent subsidiary and epidermal cells. What is the source of ATP that powers the guard cell proton pump? The two most logical sources would be either photosynthesis in the guard cell chloroplast or cellular respiration. Although most guard cells do contain chloroplasts, they're generally smaller, less abundant, with fewer, fewer thylakoids than those underlying mesophyll cells. As noted above, guard cell chloroplasts apparently lack the enzymatic machinery for photosynthetic carbon fixation. On the other hand, although ATP production has not been measured directly, indirect evidence indicates that they are capable of using light energy to produce ATP, a process known as photophosphorylation. Photosynthesis is probably not the only immediate source of energy, however, since stomatal movement can occur in the dark. An alternative source of energy is cellular respiration. Guard cells do have large numbers of mitochondria and high levels of respiratory enzymes. They may well be able to derive sufficient ATP from the oxidation of carbon through oxidative phosphorylation, and it appears that guard cells have more than adequate capacity to produce, through either respiration or photosynthesis, all the energy necessary to drive stomatal opening. Stomatal movements are also controlled by external environmental factors. The role of stomata is to allow entry of CO2 into the leaf for photosynthesis, while at the same time preventing excessive water loss. In this sense, they evidently serve a homeostatic function. They operate to maintain a consistency of the internal environment of the leaf. It should come as no surprise then to find that stomatal movement is regulated by a variety of environmental and internal factors such as light, CO2 levels, water status of the plant, and temperature. 
It might be expected, for example, that stomata will open in the light in order to admit CO2 for photosynthesis or partially close when CO2 levels are high in order to conserve water while allowing photosynthesis to continue. On the other hand, conditions of extreme water stress should override the plant's immediate photosynthetic needs and lead to closure, protecting the leaf against the potentially more damaging effects of dissection. In general, these expectations have been verified by direct observation. Each of these factors can theoretically be studied independently under the controlled conditions of the laboratory, but the extent to which they interact under natural conditions makes it far more difficult to study the effects of one relative to the other. Moreover, it must be kept in mind that stomatal opening is not an all-or-none phenomenon. At any given time, the extent of stomatal opening and its impact on both photosynthesis and water loss will be determined by the sum of all of these factors and not by any one alone. Light and carbon dioxide regulate stomatal opening. Both light and CO2 appear to make a substantial contribution to the daily cycle of stomatal movements. Their effects are also tightly coupled, which makes it very difficult to distinguish their relative contributions. In general, low CO2 concentrations in light stimulate opening, while high CO2 concentrations cause rapid closure even in the light. The response of the stomata is to the intracellular concentration of CO2 in the guard cells. Recall that the outer surfaces of the epidermis, including the guard cells, are covered with the CO2 impermeable cuticle. Once induced to close by high CO2 treatment, stomata are not easily forced to open by treatment with CO2-free air. This is because the closed guard cells remain in equilibrium with the high CO2 content of the air trapped in substomal chamber, stomatal chamber. Consequently, it is the CO2 content of the substomatal chamber rather than the ambient atmosphere that is most important in regulating stomatal opening. The actual mechanism by which CO2 regulates stomatal opening is not well understood. I'm sorry, it is not understood, full stop. Stomata normally open at dawn. As well, stomata closed by exposure to high CO2 can be induced to open slowly if placed in the light. Both responses appear to result from two separate effects of light, one indirect and one direct. The indirect effect requires a relatively high fluence rates and is usually attributed to a reduction in intracellular, intercellular CO2 levels due to photosynthesis in the mesophyll cells. By the same argument, closure of the guard cells in the dark can be attributed to the accumulation of respiratory CO2 inside the leaf. This interpretation is reinforced by the observation that the action spectrum for moderate to high fluence rates resembles that for photosynthesis with peaks in both the red and blue. Thus, it appears that CO2 is a primary trigger and that at least in intact leaves, the indirect effect of light may operate through regulation of intercellular CO2 levels. A significant difficulty with this interpretation, however, is that similar action spectra have been obtained for isolated epidermal peels such a result in the absence of an intact leaf are used strongly for an important yet undefined role of the guard cell chloroplast. Perhaps one of the more significant advances to emerge in recent years is the unequivocal demonstration of a direct effect of low-fluence blue light on stomatal opening. If the stomata depended solely on the photosynthetically active light, it would likely suffer from two limitations. First, the guard cells would be unable to respond to light levels below the photosynthetic light compensation point i.e. the minimum fluence rate at which photosynthesis exceeds respiration, 
And second, the system would be prone to extreme oscillations as the rate of photosynthesis fluctuated with rapid changes in PAR. A direct effect of blue light on stomatal opening would seem to circumvent these limitations. The blue light effect has been demonstrated in a variety of ways. Although stomatal opening is promoted by both red and blue light, it is generally more sensitive to blue light than to red. At low fluence rates, below 15 micromoles per meter second squared, whoops, per meter squared second, blue light will cause stomatal opening, but red light is ineffective. At higher fluence rates, stomatal opening under blue light, which presumably activates both systems, is consistently higher than under red at the same fluence rate. The response of stomata to red light is probably indirect, mediated by the gar cell chloroplastin involving photosynthetic ATP production. The action spectrum of the blue light response, on the other hand, is typical of other blue light responses and is probably mediated by cryptochrome, a putative blue light receptor. The mode of action of the blue light is not certain, but blue light does cause swelling of isolated guard, class guard cell protoplasts. The result indicates that blue light acts directly on the guard cells. Several investigators have reported that blue light activates proton extrusion by the guard cells and stimulates malate biosynthesis. Both are prerequisites to stomatal opening. But what function does the blue light response serve under natural conditions? One interesting and plausible suggestion is that it may have a role in the early morning opening of stomata. Opening can often be observed before sunrise when fluence rates are much lower than that required to drive photosynthesis. They may also remain open after sunset. The high sensitivity of the blue light response to low fluence rates, together with the relatively high proportion of blue light in sunlight at dawn and dusk, suggests that the blue light response could function as an effective light on signal. From an ecophysiological standpoint, the blue light response anticipates the need for atmospheric CO2 and drives stomatal opening in preparation for active photosynthesis. Another possible role is to stimulate rapid stomatal opening in response to sunflex. The sunflex itself would be analogous to a blue light pulse in order to maximize the opportunity for photosynthesis under this particular condition. Stomatal movements follow endogenous rhythms. Many biological processes undergo periodic fluctuations that persist under constant environmental conditions. This phenomenon, known as endogenous rhythm, is discussed further in Chapter 25. It was demonstrated that stomatal opening and closure in Tradescantia leaves persisted for at least three days, even though the plants were maintained under continuous light. A periodicity of approximately 24 hours was maintained, although the timing of opening or closure could be shifted by a six-hour dark period. Results such as these clearly indicate an involvement of an endogenous circadian rhythm in control of stomatal opening, though it is not clear how the rhythm interacts with other stimuli. The photosynthetic carbon reduction, or PCR, cycle. Now that we understand the processes involved in control of CO2 entry into a leaf, we'll examine some detail in some detail the biochemical mechanisms by which chloroplasts fix this CO2 and convert it to stable phosphorylated carbon intermediates. The PCR cycle reduces CO2 to produce a three carbon sugar. So we've got three stages that are going to be repeated again and again. So picture a pie divided into three portions. At the top, carboxylation. 
On the right side, reduction. On the left side, regeneration. So starting at the top, you have CO2 entering the carboxylation cycle. It is changed by PGA to move into the reduction cycle where ATP and ADPH are used to create a triose P to move into the regeneration phase where ATP is added to Rubisco to then produce carboxylation phase. The pathway by which all photosynthetic eukaryotic organisms ultimately incorporate CO2 into the carbohydrate is known as carbon fixation or photosynthetic carbon reduction PCR cycle. It is also referred to as the Calvin cycle in honor of Melvin Calvin, who directed the research effort that elucidated the pathway. Mapping the complex sequence of reactions involving the formation of organic carbon and its conversion to complex carbohydrates represented a major advance in plant biochemistry. For his efforts and for those of his associates, Calvin was awarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1961. The PCR cycle can be divided into three primary stages. Carboxylation, which fixes the CO2 in the presence of 5-carbon acceptor molecule, ribulose biphosphate, RUBP, and converts it into two molecules of 3-carbon acid. Reduction, which consumes the ATP and NADPH produced by photosynthetic electron transport to convert 3-carbon acid, acid to triose phosphate and three, regeneration, which consumes additional ATP to convert some of the triose phosphate back into RUBP to ensure the capacity for continuous fiction of CO2, fixation of CO2. 8.5, the carboxylation reaction fixes the CO2. Carboxylation reaction fixes CO2. Calvin's strategy for unraveling the path of carbon in photosynthesis was conceptually very straightforward. Identify the first stable organic product formed by following uptake of radio-labeled CO2. In order to achieve this, cultures of the photosynthetic green alga, Corella, were first allowed to establish a steady rate of photosynthesis. 14 CO2 was then introduced, I think that might be an error, um, CO2 was then introduced and photosynthesis continued for various periods of time before the cells were dropped rapidly into boiling menthol. The hot menthol served two functions. It denatured the enzymes, thus preventing any further metabolism, while at the same time extracting the sugars for subsequent chroma chromatographic analysis. Oh, that is not an error. It's radioactive carbon. That's why. When the time of photosynthesis was in the presence of 14 CO2 was reduced to as little as 2 seconds, most of the radioactivity was found in 3-carbon acid, 3-phosphoglycerate, 3-PGA. Thus, 3-PGA appeared to be the first stable product of photosynthesis. Other sugars that accumulated the label later in time were probably derived from 3-PGA. Because Calvin's group determined that the first product was a three-carbon molecule, the PCR cycle is commonly referred to as C3 cycle. The next step was to determine what molecule served as the acceptor, the molecule to which CO2 was added in order to make a three-carbon product. Systemic degradation of 3-PGA demonstrated that the 14-carbon label was predominantly in the carboxyl carbon. A two-carbon acceptor molecule would be logical, but the search was long and futile. No two carbon molecule could be found. 
Instead, Calvin recognized that the acceptor was the 5-carbon keto sugar ribulose 1,5-biphosphate, or RUBP. RUBP. This turned out to be the key to the entire puzzle. The reaction is a carboxylation in which CO2 is added to RUBP, forming a 6-carbon intermediate. The intermediate, which is transient and unstable, remains bound to the enzyme and is quickly hydrolyzed to two molecules of 3-BGA. The carboxylation reaction is catalyzed by the enzyme ribulose-1,5-biphosphate carboxylase oxygenase, or Rubisco. Rubisco is, without a doubt, the most abundant protein in the world, accounting for approximately 50% of the soluble protein in most leaves. The enzyme also has a high affinity for CO2 that, together with its high concentration in the chloroplast stroma, ensures rapid carboxylation at the normally low atmospheric concentrations of CO2. Thus, the reaction catalyzed by Rubisco, Rubisco maintains the CO2 concentration gradient, DX, DCDX, between the internal air spaces of the leaf and the ambient air to ensure a constant supply of this substrate for the PCR cycle. ATP and NADPH are consumed in the PCR cycle. The carboxylation reaction with a delta G or a Gibbs free energy of negative 35 kilojoules per mole is energetically very favorable. This poses an interesting question. If the equilibrium constant of the reaction favors carboxylation with such a high negative free energy change, where is the need for an input of energy from the light reactions of photosynthesis? Energy is required at two points, first for the reduction of 3PGA and second for the regeneration of the RUBP acceptor molecule. Each of these requirements will be discussed in turn. Reduction of 3PGA. In order for the chloroplast to continue to take up CO2, two conditions must be met. First, the product molecules 3PGA must be continually removed, and second, provisions must be made to maintain an adequate supply of the acceptor molecule RUBP. Both require energy in the form of ATP and NADPH. The 3PGA is removed by reduction to the triose phosphate glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. This is a two-step reaction in which the 3PGA is first phosphorylated to a 1,3-biphosphoglycerate which is then reduced to a glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate, G3P. Both the ATP and the NADPH required in these two steps are product of the light reactions, and together they represent one of two sites of energy input. The resulting triose sugar phosphate, G3P, is available for export to the cytoplasm, probably after conversion to dihydroxyacetone phosphate, or DHAP. Regeneration of RUBP. In order to maintain the process of CO2 reduction, it is necessary to ensure a continuing supply of the acceptor molecule RUBP. This is accomplished by a series of reactions involving four, five, six, and seven carbon sugars. These reactions include the condensation of a six carbon fructose phosphate with a triose phosphate to form a five carbon sugar and a four carbon sugar. Another triose joins with the 4-carbon sugar to produce a 7-carbon sugar. When the 7-carbon sugar is combined with a third triose phosphate, the result is two more 5-carbon sugars. All of the 5-carbon sugar can be isomerized to form ribulose 5-phosphate, or RU5P. RU5P can in turn be phosphorylated to regenerate the required ribulose 1,5-biphosphate.
The net effect of these reactions is to recycle the carbon from five out of every six G3P molecules, thus regenerating three RuBP molecules to replace those used in earlier carboxylation reactions. The summary reactions shown in figure eight and nine include, oh, sorry, nine and 10, include three molecules of RuBP on each side of the equation. This is to emphasize that the cycle serves to regenerate the original number of acceptor molecules and maintain a steady state carbon reduction. For every three terms of the cycle, i.e. the uptake of three CO2, there is sufficient carbon to regenerate the required number of acceptor molecules plus one additional triose phosphate, which is available for export from the chloroplast. The stoichiometry in figures nine and 10 was chosen to illustrate this point. Six turns of the cycle would generate six molecules of RuBP, leaving the equivalent of one additional hexose sugar as a net product, or two of the three GP. But one additional hexose sugar as a net product. 12 turns would generate the equivalent of a sucrose molecule, 12 carbons, and so on. As a general rule, it is necessary to show that the required enzymes are present and active before a complex metabolic scheme can be accepted as fact. Hmm. Okay, so figures eight and nine and 10 are very visual, so it's gonna be hard to describe them. But what we see is, oh, I'm not even gonna try. So we start with three PGA, we add ATP, which then grabs the phosphate into an ADP, and that becomes 1,3-biphosphoglycerate. And then it spits out one of the phosphates to create an NADPH to NADP+. So it steals the hydrogen, spits out a phosphate, to become a glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate, or a G3P. And remember, when that phosphate gets spit out, that's what is the energy mover. That's what makes ATP a thing, is the splitting off and adding of that phosphate group. Very energetic. So that's why we care about it. <laughs> so Calvin's PCR cycle has met this criterion since all of the enzymes required by the scheme in figure nine have now been demonstrated in the stoma. Stroma. Moreover, all of the reactions have been demonstrated in vitro at rates that would support maximal rates of photosynthesis. It's filthy complicated. And so um, the photosynthetic carbon reduction PCR cycle, they've got uh, looks like 11 steps in this biochemical form. And it is, it is a lot, right? I mean, it's similar to our Krebs cycle in that you've got You've got quite a few active enzymes that are all manipulating NADPH and ATP and moving that phosphate group around to both create energy and then to stabilize um, transport enzymes to create that, that energy cycle over and over again. So very complicated. Uh, what are the energetics of the PCR cycle? So for every three turns of the cycle, that is the uptake of three molecules of CO2, a total of six molecules of NADPH and nine molecules of ATP are required. Therefore, the reduction of each molecule of CO2 requires two molecules of NADPH and three molecules of ATP for a ratio of ATP-NADPH of three to two or 1.5. 
Since each NADPH stores two electrons, we can see that a total of four electrons are required to fix each molecule of CO2. This represents a total energy input of 529 kilojoules per mole of CO2. Oxidation of one mole of hexose would yield about 2,817 kilojoules or 469 kilojoules per mole of CO2. Thus, the photosynthetic reduction process represents an energy storage efficiency of about 88%. If we include the energy consumed in the form of the 3 ATP per CO2, which would be around 282 kilojoules per mole for the regeneration of RUBP, then the energy storage efficiency is about 58%. An important assumption underlying these simple calculations is that all of the CO2 fixed by the PCR cycle actually remains fixed in the leaf. Later in this chapter, we'll see that this assumption does not necessarily hold under all conditions. The PCR cycle is highly regula regulated. It was originally believed that the PCR cycle did not require a significant level of regulation, in part because early in vitro studies of Rubisco suggested a low and probably rate-limiting reactivity for this critical enzyme. Its in vivo reactivity is now known to be much higher, although it still may be rate-limiting. Uh, and just as a reminder, rate-limiting means that's as fast as your reaction can go. So Rubisco is an enzyme. So everybody remember the enzymes drop the activation energy and speed up processes. So if Rubisco is telling you that this is fast as it can go, that is as fast as it can go. It is the rate limiting step for your combinations of energy sources. Uh, for your reactions for rate for energy sources. In addition, plants were widely believed to be opportunistic and would use available light, water, and CO2 to conduct photosynthesis at maximum rates. However, it is now recognized that photosynthesis does not operate in isolation, and an unregulated photosynthetic machinery is incompatible with an orderly and integrated metabolism. Okay, I think this is an important point. So the more we emphasize maximum rates, that's not how organisms work, right? Maximum rates can be achievable, but it ignores how that whole system gets tied in. So I think we as humans, if we have this idea of uh, exploiting an organism for its maximal rate of efficiency, like say taking up contaminants in a hyperaccumulator, you can't just look at those maximal rates of uptake. You have to look at the whole system conditions and look at those rate limiting factors um, in context. So changing levels of intermediates between light and dark periods and competing demands for light energy and carbon with other cellular needs, including nitrate reduction, for example, demands some degree of regulation, right? The plant needs to live and everybody in the plant, like all those aggregates need to work together to allow the plant to live. So you can't just have maximal rates of photosynthesis dumping oxygen and these free radicals into the cell structure as much as they would go, right? You can't maximize the rate. You have to minimize the rate so that the cycle can work. So all those systems can work at a level of efficiency with each other. So it's not about the individual organ efficiency. It's about the holistic system getting into that Goldilocks zone. The most effective control is, of course, at the level of enzyme activities. Because enzymes control everything, right? 
Molecular biology combined with classical enzyme kinetics and structural information obtained through protein crystallization has begun to elucidate the sophisticated nature of photosynthetic enzyme regulation. A principal factor in the regulation of PCR cycle is, perhaps, not surprisingly, light. Mm, I love this. It's such a it's such a complex idea, right? So on page 140, if you're following along, you've got some lovely examples of um, an energy summation for the reactions within the PCR cycle. You've got an autocatalytic property of PCR cycle. Uh, so this is the rate of photosynthesis responsible for each place in the phosphorylation, phosphorylation process. Um, and you get some totals. So you have a sum total of reaction, which is equal to 3RUBP three plus 3CO2 three is equal to 3RUBP plus G3P. And that phosphate group, again, is your energetic item. So we're always looking at the phosphate to figure out what energy we're actually getting out of the system. The regeneration of RUBP is autocatalytic. The rate of carbon reduction is partly dependent on the availability of an adequate pool of acceptor molecules, CO2 and RUBP. The PCR cycle can utilize newly fixed carbon to increase the size of this pool when necessary, though uh, through autocatalytic regeneration of RUBP. During the night, when photosynthesis is shut down and carbon is required for other metabolic activities, the concentrations of intermediates in the cycle, including RUBP, will fall to low levels. Consequently, when photosynthesis starts up again, the rate could be severely limited by the availability of RUBP, the CO2 acceptor molecule. Normally, the extra carbon taken in through the PCR cycle is accumulated as starch or exported from the chloroplast. However, the PCR cycle has the potential to augment supplies of acceptor by retaining that extra carbon and diverting it toward generating increasing amounts of RUBP instead. Hmm. In this way, the amount of acceptor can be quickly built up within the chloroplast to the level needed to support rapid photosynthesis. Only after the level of RUBP has been built up to adequate levels will carbon be withdrawn for storage or export. The time required to build up the necessary levels of PCR cycle intermediates is the transition from dark to light and is called the photosynthetic induction time. No other sequence of photosynthetic reactions has this capacity, which may help to explain why all photosynthetic organisms ultimately rely on the C3 cycle for carbon reduction. How autocatalysis auto is regulated is not clear. However, the most effective control would be to enhance the activities of enzymes favoring recycling over those leading to starch synthesis or export of product. Rubisco activity is regulated indirectly by light. Rubisco activity declines rapidly to zero when the light is turned off and regained only slowly when the light is once again turned on. Light activation is apparently indirect and involves complex interactions between magnesium 2 plus fluxes across the thylakoid, CO2 activation, chloroplast, pH changes, and an inactivating protein. As noted in the previous chapter, light-driven electron transport leads to a net movement of protons into the lumen of the thylakoids. The movement of protons across the thylakoid membrane generates a protein gradient equivalent to three pH units and an increase in the pH of the stroma from around 5.0 in the dark to about pH 8.0 in the light. In vitro, rubisco is generally more active at pH 8.0 than at pH 5.0. 
The magnesium 2 plus requirement for rubisco activity was noted some years ago. Light also brings about an increase in the free magnesium of the stroma as it moves out of the lumen to compensate for the protein flux in the opposite direction. Work in the laboratory of G.H. Lorimer, again using isolated rubisco in vitro, has shown that rubisco uses CO2 not only as a substrate, but also as an activator. The activating CO2 must bind to an activating site called the allosteric site that is separate and distinct from the substrate binding sites. Based on these in vitro studies, Lorimer and Miziorko proposed a model for in vivo activation that takes into account all three factors, CO2, magnesium 2 plus, and pH. According to this model, the CO2 first reacts with an epsilon amino group of a lysine residue in the allosteric site, forming what is called a carbamate. Carbamate formation requires the release of two protons and consequently would be favored by increasing pH. The magnesium 2 plus then becomes coordinated to the carbonate to form a carbamate Mg2 plus complex, which is the active form of the enzyme. Further experiments, however, indicated that the in vitro model could not fully account for the activation of rubisco in leaves. In particular, measured values for in vivo magnesium 2 plus and carbon dioxide concentrations and pH differences were not sufficient to account for more than half the expected activation level. This paradox was resolved by the discovery of an Arabidopsis mutant that failed to activate rubisco in the light, even though the enzyme isolated from the mutant was apparently identical to that isolated from the wild type. Electrophoretic analysis revealed that the RCA mutant, as it was called, was missing a soluble chloroplast protein. Subsequent experiments demonstrated that full activation of rubisco could be restored in vitro simply by adding the missing protein to a reaction mixture containing rubisco, RUBP, and physiological levels of CO2. This protein has been named rubisco activase to signify its role in promoting light-dependent activation of rubisco. Rubisco activase is known to require energy in the form of ATP. The protein has been identified in at least 10 genera of higher plants, as well as the green alga Chlamydomonas. It's clear that rubisco activase has a significant and probably ubiquitous role to play in regulating eukaryotic photosynthesis. Other PCR enzymes are also regulated by light. Rubisco is not the only PCR cycle enzyme requiring light activation. Studies with algal cells, leaves, and isolated chloroplasts have shown that the activities of at least four other PCR cycle enzymes are also stimulated by light. These include glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase, G3PDH, fructose-1,6-biphosphatase, FBPase, Cetoheptulose-1,7-bisphosphatase, that's a new one, SB-PASE, and ribulose-5-phosphate kinase, R5PK. The mechanism for light activation is different from that of rubisco and is best demonstrated in the case of FB-PASE. Light activation of FB-PASE can be blocked by the electron transport inhibitor DCMU and agents that selectively modify sulfohydryl groups. On the other hand, the enzyme can be activated in the dark by reducing the agent dithiothretriol, DDT. 
It's gradually emerged that the activation requires the participation of both chloroplast ferredoxin, a product of the light-dependent reactions, and thioredoxin. Like ferredoxin, thioredoxin is a small 12 kDase iron sulfide protein known to biochemists for its role in the reduction of ribonucleotides to deoxyribonucleotides. It contains two cysteine residues in close proximity that undergo reversible reduction oxidation from the disulfide SS state to the sulfhydryl SHHS state. In the chloroplast, PSI drives the reduction of ferredoxin, which in turn reduces thioredoxin. The reaction is mediated by the enzyme ferredoxin thioredoxin, thioredoxin reductase. Thioredoxin subsequently reduces the appropriate disulfide bound on the target enzyme, resulting in its activation. Subsequent deactivation of the enzyme in the dark is not well understood, but clearly the sulfhydryl groups are in some way reoxidized and the enzymes rendered inactive. The traditional view of the PCR cycle was that it did not require the direct input of light. These reactions were consequently referred to as the dark reactions of photosynthesis. In view of the fact that at least five critical enzymes in the cycle require light activation, such a designation is clearly not appropriate. Chloroplasts of C3 plants also exhibit competing carbon oxidation processes. The most widely used method for assessing the rate of photosynthesis in whole cells, e.g. algae, or intact plants is to measure the gas exchange, either CO2 uptake or O2 evolution. So this could be a good health measure in our pilot study. This is at best a complicated process since there are several different and competing metabolic reactions that contribute to the gas exchange of an algal cell or higher plant leaf. Cellular, or mitochondrial respiration, R, is an example of an opposite gas exchange since it results in an evolution of CO2 and an uptake of O2. Historically, it was assumed that mitochondrial-based respiration and chloroplast-based photosynthesis were effectively independent and that their respective contributions to gas exchange could be assessed independently. One argument held that photosynthesis could supply the entire energy need of the leaf directly and mitochondria would consequently shut down in the light. We now know that measuring gas exchange is a far less certain process, complicated in part by oxidative metabolism and the consequent evolution of CO2 directly associated with photosynthetic metabolism. Called photorespiration, or PR, this process involves the reoxidation of products just previously assimilated in photosynthesis. The photorespiratory pathway involves the activities of at least three different cellular organelles, the chloroplast, the peroxisome, and the mitochondrion. And because CO2 is evolved, results in net loss of carbon from the cell. The measured CO2 uptake in the light is termed apparent, or net photosynthesis, AP, since it represents photosynthetic CO2 uptake minus the CO2 evolved from mitochondrial respiration plus photorespiration. True or gross photosynthesis, GP, is this calculated by adding the amount of mitochondrial respired CO2 plus photorespired CO2 that has taken up in the light, to that taken up in the light. AP equals GP minus bracket R plus PR, close bracket, GP equals AP plus R plus PR. 
Early experiments based on discrimination between carbon isotopes suggest that there were both qualitative and quantitative differences between the process of respiration, i.e. CO2 evolution, as it occurred in the dark and the light. On this basis, CO2 evolution in the light was called photorespiration. Initially, the concept was that light would alter the rate of respiration to say, initially the concept that light would alter the rate of respiration was, to say the least, controversial. However, biochemical and molecular evidence has firmly established photorespiration as an important process contributing to gas exchange properties of C3 leaves. And kind of all plants, right? Because remember, all plants use some variation of C3 at some point in their metabolic process. So if you're a C3 plant, that's all you use. If you're a C4, yeah, you got another thing going on. But at its heart, you're, you're repeating C3 with then a little bit of a writer on it. Rubisco catalyzes the fixation of both CO2 and O2. While the legitimacy of photorespiration was being established during the 60s, the attention of several investigators was attracted to the synthesis and metabolism of a two-carbon compound, glycolate. We will revisit this when we talk about glyphosate at some point, I would imagine. It gradually emerged that glycolate metabolism was related to photorespiration and that the enzymes involved were located in the peroxisomes and mitochondria as well as the chloroplast. The key to photorespiratory CO2 evolution and glycolate metabolism is the bifunctional nature of Rubisco. In addition to the carboxylation reaction, Rubisco also catalyzes an oxygenase reaction, hence the name ribulose-1,5-biphosphate carboxylase oxygenase. With the addition of a molecule of oxygen, RuBP is converted into one molecule of 3PGA and one molecule of phosphoglycolate. The phosphoglycolate is subsequently metabolized in a series of reactions in the peroxisome and mitochondrion that results in the release of a molecule of CO2 and recovery of the remaining carbon by the PCR cycle. The C2 glycolate cycle, also known as the photosynthetic carbon oxidation, or PCO cycle, begins with the oxidation of RuBP to 3PGA and P-glycolate. The 3PGA is available for further metabolism by the PCR cycle, but the P-glycolate is rapidly dephosphorylated to the glycolate in the chloroplast. The glycolate is exported from the chloroplast and diffuses to a peroxisome. Taken up by the peroxisome, the glycolate is oxidized to glycosylate and hydrogen peroxide. The peroxide is broken down by catalase and the glycosylate undergoes a transamination reaction to form the amino acid glycine. Glycine is then transferred to a mitochondrion where two molecules of glycine or four carbons are converted to one molecule of serine, three carbons, plus one CO2. Glycine is thus the immediate source of photorespired CO2. The serine then leaves the mitochondrion, returning to peroxisome, where the amino group is given up in a transamination reaction, and the product, hydroxypyruvate, is reduced to glycerate. Finally, glycerate is returned to the chloroplast, where it is phosphorylated to 3PGA. The release of carbon as CO2 during the conversion of glycine to serine is accompanied by the release of an equivalent amount of nitrogen in the form of ammonia. During of active photorespiration, the rate of ammonia release may be substantially greater than the rate of nitrogen assimilation. This nitrogen is not lost, however, as the ammonia is rapidly reassimilated in the chloroplast using the enzymes of the glutamate synthase cycle. 
The C2 glycolate pathway involves complex interactions between photosynthesis, photorespiration, and various aspects of nitrogen metabolism in at least three different cellular organelles. Much of the supporting evidence comes from labeling studies employing either 14 CO2 or specific intermediates, or 18 O2, in which the fate of the label is followed through the various suspected chemical transformations. As with the PCR cycle, all of the enzymes necessary to carry out the C2 glycolate cycle have been demonstrated. The distribution of intermediates between the three organelles, however, is not conclusively established. It's largely inferred from the location of the enzymes. All the subcellular organelles involved have been isolated and shown to contain the appropriate enzymes. I wonder if some of these intermediate transfer states are actually uh, resonance structures. So you couldn't necessarily isolate them in whatever shape they were actually being useful in because they, the resonance would change. I mean, it could even change by light, right? So you would have a different shape continuously changing in these enzymes that wouldn't be necessarily determined by their location. They would be, they would be like little transformers, you know. Why photorespiration? In normal air, 21% O2, the rate of phosphorespiration, photorespiration, in sunflower leaves is about 17% of gross photosynthesis. Every photorespired CO2, however, requires an input of two molecules of O2. The true rate of oxygenation is therefore about 34%, and the ratio of carboxylation to oxygenation is about 3 to 1. This experimental value agrees with similar values calculated for several species based on the known characteristic of purified rubisco. The ratio of carboxylation to oxygenation depends, however, on the relative levels of O2 and CO2, since both gases compete for binding at the active site on rubisco. As the concentration of O2 declines, the relative level of carboxylation increases until at zero, CO, at zero oxygen, photorespiration is also zero. On the other hand, increases in the relative level of O2 or a decrease in CO2 shifts the balance in favor of oxygenation. An increase in temperature will also favor oxygenation since the temperature increases the solubility of gases in water declines, but O2 solubility is less effective than CO2. So that's, I think I got that question wrong in my astro class. Thus, O2 will inhibit photosynthesis measured by net CO2 reduction in plants that photorespire. The inhibition of photosynthesis by O2 was first recognized by Otto Warburg in the 1920s, but 50 years were to pass before the bifunctional nature of Rubisco offered the first satisfactory explanation for this phenomenon. There's also an energy cost associated with the photorespiration and the glycolate pathway. Not only is the amount of ATP and NADPH expended in the glycolate pathway following oxygenation, 5 ATP plus 3 NADPH greater than that expended for the reduction of 1 CO2 in the PCR cycle, 3 ATP plus 2 NADPH, but there is also a net loss of carbon. On the surface then, photorespiration appears to be a costly and inefficient process with respect to both energy and carbon acquisition. It is logical to ask, as many have, why should the plant indulge in such an apparently wasteful process? The question is not easily answered, although several ideas have been put forward. 
One has it that the oxygenase function of Rubisco is inescapable. Rubisco evolved at a time when the atmosphere contained large amounts of CO2 but little oxygen. Under these conditions, an inability to discriminate between the two gases would have had little significance to the survival of the organism. Both CO2 and O2 react with the enzyme at the same active site, and oxygenation requires activation by CO2 just as carboxylation does. It's believed that oxygen began to accumulate in the atmosphere primarily due to photosynthetic activity, but by the time the atmospheric content of O2 had increased to significant proportions, the bifunctional nature of the enzyme had been established without recourse. In a sense, C3 plants were the architect of their own problem, generating the oxygen that functions as a competitive inhibitor of carbon reduction. By this view, then, the oxygenase function is an evolutionary, quote, hangover that has no use for rule. However, this is an oversimplified view of the photorespiration, since photorespiratory mutants of Aridopsis proved to be lethal under certain growth conditions, indicating the essential nature of the photorespiratory pathway in C3 plants. Clearly, any inefficiencies resulting from photorespiration in C3 plants are apparently not severe. There is no evidence that selection pressures have caused evolution of a form of rubisco with lower affinity for O2. While most agree that oxygenation is an unavoidable consequence of evolution, many have argued that plants have capitalized on this apparent evolutionary deficiency by turning it into a useful, if not essential, metabolic sequence. The glycolate pathway, for example, undoubtedly serves as a scavenger function. For example, two turns of the cycle, two molecules of phosphoglycate, are formed by oxygenation. Of these four carbon atoms, one is lost as CO2, and three are returned to the chloroplast. The glycolate pathway thus recovers 75% of the carbon that would otherwise be lost as glycolate. The salvage role alone may be sufficient justification for the complex glycolate cycle. There's also the possibility that some of the intermediates, serine and glycine for example, are of use in other biosynthetic pathways, although this possibility is still subject to some debate. Recently, strong experimental support has been provided for the thesis that photorespiration could also function as a sort of safety valve in situations that require dissipation of excess excitation energy. For example, a de significant decline in the photosynthetic capacity of leaves irradiated in the absence of CO2 and O2 has been reported, which would be good for our little spaceship, wouldn't it? Um, injury is prevented, however, if sufficient O2 is present to permit photorespiration to occur. Apparently, the O2 consumed by photorespiration is sufficient to protect the plant from photooxidative damage by permitting continued operation of the electron transport system. This could be of considerable ecological value under conditions of high light and limited CO2 supply, for example, when the stomata are closed due to moisture stress. Indeed, photorespiratory mutants of Aridopsis are more sensitive to photoinhibition than their wild-type counterparts. A claim made frequently in the literature is that crop productivity might be significantly enhanced by inhibiting or genetically eliminating photorespiration. As a result, substantial effort has been expanded in the search for chemicals that inhibit the glycolate pathway or selective breeding for low photorespiratory strains. Others have surveyed large numbers of species in an effort to find a rubisco with significantly lower affinity for oxygen. 
All of these efforts have been unsuccessful, presumably because the basic premise that photorespiration is detrimental to the plant and counterproductive is incorrect. Clearly, success in increasing photosynthesis and improving productivity lies in other directions. For example, a mechanism for concentrating CO2 in the photosynthetic cells could be one way to express photorespiratory loss and improve the overall efficiency of carbon assimilation. That is exactly what has been achieved by C4 and CAM plants and will be discussed further in chapter 15. In addition to PCR, chloroplasts exhibit an oxidative pentose phosphate cycle. Although the oxidative pentose phosphate cycle, or OPPC, is restricted to the cytosol in animals, this pathway is present in both the chloroplasts and cytosol in plants. Furthermore, the chloroplastic OPPC shares several intermediates with the PCR pathway and is closely integrated with it. The first step in the oxidative pentose phosphate cycle is the oxidation of glucose 6P, G6P, to 6-phosphogluconate, 6P-gluconate, by the enzyme glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase, dehydrogenase. The glucose 6-phosphate and fructose 6-phosphate are components of the same stromal hexose phosphate pool that's shared with the RPPC. This reaction is highly exergonic, with Gibbs free energy less than zero, and is thus not reversible. As a consequence, this reaction is apparently the rate-determining step for the stromal OPPC. The second reaction in the OPPC involves the oxidation of 6-phosphogluconate to ribulose 5-phosphate, R5P, by the enzyme gluconate 6-phosphate dehydrogenase with the production of one molecule of NADPH and one CO2. The simultaneous operation of both the PCR pathway and the OPPC in the stroma would result in the reduction of one molecule of CO2 to carbohydrate at the expense of 3 ATP and 2 NADPH through the PCR pathway. Subsequently, the carbohydrate would be reoxidized to CO2 by the OPPC yielding to NADPH. Thus, if both metabolic pathways operated simultaneously in the stroma, 3 ATP would be consumed with no net fixation of CO2, and this would represent a futile cycling of CO2 with the net consumption of ATP, which would be incredibly wasteful. So how do plants overcome the apparent conundrum created by the presence of both a reductive and an oxidative pentose phosphate cycle in the same compartment? The potential for the futile cycling of CO2 is overcome by metabolic regulation, which ensures that key enzymes of the PCR cycle are active only in the light and inactive in the dark. In contrast, the key regulatory enzymes of OPPC are active only in the dark. These key regulatory enzymes of the PCR cycle, FB-PASE, SP-BASE, and RU5P kinase, are converted by light from their inactive to their active forms by reduced thioredoxin through the reducing equivalence generated by photosynthetic electron transport. In contrast to stromal FB-PASE, SB-PASE, and RU5P kinase, which are active when their disulfide bonds are reduced by thioredoxin, SS to SHHS, the key regulatory enzyme in the OPPC, or glucose 6P dehydrogenase reaction, is active when its internal disulfide bonds are oxidized and inactive when they are reduced by thioredoxin. As a consequence, Rubisco, as well as stromal FB-PASE, SB-PASE, 
and RU5P kinase are in their active states in the light, but phosphogluconate dehydrogenase is in inactive state, whereas in the dark, phosphogluconate dehydrogenase is in its active state and the key enzymes of the PRC pathways are inactive. Thus, this exquisite regulation ensures that photosynthesis results in the net fixation of CO2 and conversion to carbohydrate and prevents the wasteful consumption of ATP. The OPPC is thought to be a means to generate NADPH required to drive biosynthetic reactions such as lipid and fatty acid biosynthesis in plant mesophyll cells. The oxidative pentose phosphate cycle, which serves as a precursor for the ribose and deoxyribose required in the synthesis of nucleic acids. Another intermediate of the oxidative pentose phosphate pathway with potential significance to plants is the 4-carbon etherose 4P, a precursor for the biosynthesis of aromatic amino acids, lignin, and flavonoids. In addition to the RU5P generated by OPPC in the dark, it can be converted to RUBP in the light to provide the necessary acceptor molecule to get the RPPC started. Sorry, there's a little break in um, a summary of uh, enzyme reactions, which we'll go into in just a second. So let me get to the beginning here. So let's do a quick review of enzymes, because why not? We're here, we're talking about it. And the biochemical cycles in the Calvin cycle are complicated enough. I mean, they're on Krebs level, right? So we got to in humans, this is pretty important. So the ATP cycle is obviously one of the most biochemically important um, pathways that we can talk about. So let's take a minute to talk about enzymes. Living cells must carry out an enormous variety of biochemical reactions, yet cells are able to rapidly construct very large and complicated molecules or regulate the flow of materials through complex metabolic pathways with unerring precision and accuracy. All of this is made possible by enzymes. Enzymes are biological catalysts. They facilitate the conversion of a substrate molecule to a product, but are not themselves permanently altered by the reaction. Sometimes. Cells contain thousands of enzymes, each catalyzing a particular reaction. Enzyme-catalyzed reactions differ from ordinary chemical reactions in four important ways. One, high specificity. Enzymes are capable of recognizing subtle and highly specific differences in substrate and product molecules to the extent of discriminating between mirror images of the same molecules, called stereoisomers or enantiomers, in the same way you do not fit your right and your left glove. We already talked about that, right? Two, high reaction rates. The rates of enzyme-catalyzed reactions are typically 10 to the 6 to 10 to the 12 greater than rates of uncatalyzed reactions. Many enzymes are capable of converting thousands of substrate molecules every second. Three, mild reaction conditions. Enzyme reactions typically occur at atmospheric pressure, relatively low temperature, and with a narrow range of pH near neutrality. There are exceptions, such as certain, certain protein-degrading degrading enzymes that operate in vacuoles with a pH near 4, or enzymes of thermophilic bacteria that thrive in hot sulfur springs where temperatures are close to 100 degrees C. Most enzymes, however, enable biological reactions to occur under conditions far milder, milder than those required for most chemical reactions. Opportunity for regulation. 
The presence of a particular enzyme and its amount is regulated by controlled gene expression and protein turnover. In addition, enzyme activity is subject to regulatory control by a variety of activators and inhibitors. These opportunities for regulation are instrumental in keeping complex and often competing metabolic reactions in balance. The first step in an enzyme-catalyzed reaction is the reversible binding of a substrate molecule S with the enzyme E to form an enzyme-substrate complex ES. E plus S yields ES to E plus P. The enzyme-substrate complex then dissociates to release the product molecule P. The free enzyme is regenerated and then available to react with another molecule of substrate. Enzymes are proteins, and the site on the protein where the enzymes where the substrate binds and the reaction occurs is called the active site. Active sites are usually located in a cleft or pocket in the folded protein and contain reactive amino acid side chains such as carboxyl, amino, so remember carboxyl is COO negative, amino is NH3+, or sulfur, which is S-, minus groups, that position the substrate and participate in the catalysis. The shape and polarity of the active site is largely responsible for the specificity of an enzyme since the shape and polarity of the substrate molecule must complement or fit the geometry of the active site in order for the substrate to gain access and bind to the catalytic groups. Where two or more substrates participate in a common reaction, binding of the first substrate may induce a change in the conformation of the protein, which then allows the second substrate active access to the active site. Enzymes increase the rate of a reaction because they lower the amount of energy, known as the activation barrier, required to initiate the reaction. This effect is illustrated by the ball and hill analogy. In order for the ball to roll down the hill, it must first be pushed over the lip of the depression in which it sits. This act increases the potential energy of the ball. When the ball is poised at the very top of the lip, it is in a transition state. That is, there is an equal probability that it will fall back into the depression or roll forward and down the hill. Chemical reactions go through a similar transition state. As reacting molecules come together, they increasingly repel each other and the potential energy of the system increases. If the reactants approach with sufficient kinetic energy, however, they will achieve a transition state where there's an equal probability that they will decompose back to reactants or proceed to products. In the case of an enzyme-catalyzed reaction, the enzyme-substrate enzyme complex takes a different reaction pathway a pathway that has a transition state energy level substantially lower than that of the uncatalyzed reaction. Enzyme-catalyzed reactions exhibit reaction kinetics that exhibit a hyperbolic relationship between the reaction velocity V and the substrate concentration S. Enzymes that exhibit such reaction kinetics are said to follow Michaelis-Menten kinetics, uh, and you'll remember from water treatment that we use monad kinetics, and I'm sure we'll talk about that here. But Michaelis-Menten kinetics is the same one that you have to study for on the MCAT, so this is a really good crossover here. Michaelis-Menten kinetics are characterized by substrate saturation, which reflects the fact that the enzyme becomes saturated with substrate with increasing substrate concentration at constant enzyme concentration. 
Michaelis-Menten equation describes this relationship mathematically, where V equals big V max times S concentration over Km plus S concentration, where V is the initial rate of the reaction, V max is the maximum substrate saturated rate of the reaction, and the Km is the substrate concentration that provides the half maximal substrate saturated rate of the reaction. It's your K value. It's your constant, whatever. The Km is used as a measure of the affinity that an enzyme has for its substrate. A high Km value implies low affinity for the enzyme for its substrate, where a low Km value implies high affinity for the enzyme for its substrate. It is important to note that enzymes do not alter the course of a reaction. They do not change the equilibrium between reactants and products nor do they alter the free energy change or Gibbs free energy for the reaction. Enzyme, enzymes change only the rate of reaction. Most enzymes are identified by adding the suffix ace to the name of the substrate, often with some indication of the nature of the reaction. For example, alpha amylase digests amylose starch Malate dehydrogenase oxidizes, that is, removes hydrogen from malic acid, and phosphoenylpyruvate carboxylase adds carbon dioxide, a carboxyl group, to a molecule of phosphoenylpyruvate. Many enzymes do not work alone, but require the presence of non-protein cofactors. Some cofactors, called coenzymes, are transiently associated with the protein and are themselves charged or changed in the reaction. Many electron carriers, such as NAD+, or FAD, for example, serve as coenzymes, because it's got that iron or that nitrogen, and they are, in fact, co-substrates and are reduced to NADPH and FADH2 in the reaction. Prosthetic groups are non-protein cofactors more or less permanently associated with the enzyme protein. The heme group of hemoglobin is an example of a tightly bound prosthetic group. Many plant enzymes utilize iron, such as iron or calcium, as prosthetic groups, which is one reason why our CEC value is so important, the cation exchange capacity, because it's needed for reactivity within both plant species and the um, symbiotic relationships in fungal and microbial species on that nutrient transfer. Enzymes and enzyme reactions are sensitive to both temperature and pH. Like most chemical reactions, enzyme reactions have a Q10 of about 2, which means that the rate of the reaction doubles for each 10 degrees Celsius rise in temperature. The rate increases with temperature until an optimum is reached, beyond which the rate usually declines sharply. The decline is normally caused by thermal denaturation or unfolding of the enzyme protein. With most enzymes, thermal denaturation occurs in the range of 40 to 45 degrees C, although many enzymes exhibit temperatures closer to 25 or 30 degrees C. Some enzymes exhibit instability at lower temperatures as well. One example is pyruvate, pyrophosphate dikinase, or PPDK. PPDK is unstable and loses activity at temperatures below about 12 to 15 degrees C. Enzyme reactions are also sensitive to pH, since pH influences the ionization of catalytic groups at the active site. Because remember, pH is hydrogen availability. So you're not actually 
So it would be a mistake to think of pH as a physical attribute like we normally do in this case because we're more concerned about the presence of a reductor or an oxidizer and the availability of hydrogen at the active site. So normally we think of pH as a physical descriptor, but in this case we're using the, hyd the hydrogen content or concentration to look at how that impacts the uh, availability of the active site. The conformation of the protein may also be modified by pH. Substrate molecules as well as other related metabolites may not only participate in enzyme catalysis, but may also stimulate enzyme activity. This phenomenon is called enzyme activation and occurs as a consequence of the binding of the substrate or metabolic molecule to a site on the enzyme that is distinct from the active site. This second alternative binding site on the enzyme is called the allosteric site. The binding of the substrate to the allosteric site induces a conformational change in the active site, which enhances the rate at which the substrate S is converted to product P. Molecules capable of binding to the allosteric site are called effector molecules. Enzymes which exhibit such regulation are called allosteric enzymes. Rubisco is an example of an allosteric enzyme. CO2 is not the only substrate for the reaction catalyzed by this enzyme, but also activates Rubisco activity by binding to the epsilon amino group located in the allosteric site of Rubisco. Conversely, a variety of ions or molecules may combine with an enzyme in such a way that reduces the catalytic activity of the enzyme. These are known as inhibitors. Inhibition of an enzyme may be either irreversible or reversible. Irreversible inhibitors act by chemically modifying the active site so the substrate can no longer bind or by permanently altering the protein in some other way. Reversible inhibitors often have chemical structures that closely resemble the natural substrate. They bind at the active site, but either do not react or react very slowly. For example, the oxidation of succinate to fumarate, fumarate by the enzyme succinate dehydrogenase is competitively inhibited by malinate, an analog of succinate. Because substrate and inhibitor compete with one another for attachment to the active site, this form of inhibitor is known as competitive inhibition. Another form of reversible inhibitor, the non-competitive inhibitor, does not compete with the substrate for the active site, but binds elsewhere on the enzyme and, in doing so, restricts access of the substrate to the active site. Alternatively, non-competitive inhibitors may bind directly to the enzyme substrate complex, thereby rendering the enzyme catalytically inactive. Enzymes play a key role in feedback inhibition, one of the most common modes for metabolic regulation. Feedback inhibition occurs when the end product of a metabolic pathway controls the activity of an enzyme near the beginning of the pathway. When demand for the product is low, excess product inhibits the activity of a key enzyme in the pathway, thereby reducing the synthesis of product. Once cellular activities have depleted the supply of product, the enzyme is de-inhibited and the rate of product formation increases. The enzyme subject to feedback regulation is usually the first past a metabolic branch point. This is known as the committed step. So an example would be if we have A to B and C reacting to form D and C reacting to form F all representing committed steps. 
In an example, an excess of the product G would reduce the flow of precursor through the reaction of C to F, thereby diverting more precursor C to the product E. Alternatively, an excess of both E and G would regulate the conversion of A to B. Feedback regulation is an effective way of coordinated product information within complex pathways. Many of the enzymes of respiratory metabolism, for example, are subject to feedback regulation, thereby balancing the flow of carbon against the constantly changing energy demands of the cell. Enzymes are remarkable biological catalysts that both enable and control the variety, an enormous variety of biochemical reactions comprising life. So what does that sound like? Le Chatelier's principle, right? So if you picture a little teeter-totter and you got your reactants on one side and your products on the other, and if you increase the product, right, the teeter-totter goes down and then your reaction would increase. So it would favor your reactant if in a reversible reaction. And then vice versa, if you decrease the reactants, so your reactants would go down and you can picture, oh, I said that wrong. So picture the teeter-totter. If you take away reactants, the teeter-totter goes down on the product side and then vice versa. If you take away products, teeter-totter will um, change the weight. So then you will be favoring your reactors to equal this point until they reach a certain point where they're too heavy and then your uh, products would be would start to increase. I feel like I may have gotten that backwards, so I'll think about it. I think it's right though. Le Chatelier picturing as a teeter-totter. Uh, summary. Photosynthetic gas exchange between the leaf and the air is dependent upon diffusion and is regulated by the opening and closing of specialized epidermal pores called stomata. Stomatal movement is regulated by potassium levels in the guard cells. Opening and closing of stomata are also sensitive to environmental factors such as CO2 levels, light, temperature, and the water status of the plant. The photosynthetic carbon reduction PCR cycle occurs in the chloroplast stroma. It is the sequence of reactions all plants use to reduce carbon dioxide to organic carbon. The key enzyme is a ribulose 1,5-biphosphate carboxylase oxygenase rubisco which catalyzes the addition of a carbon dioxide molecule to an acceptor molecule, ribulose-1,5-biphosphate, RUBP. The product is two molecules of 3-phosphoglycerate, 3-PGA. Energy from the light-dependent reaction is required at two stages, ATP and NADPH, for the reduction of 3-PGA and ATP for the regeneration of the acceptor molecule, RUBP. The bulk of the cycle includes... Uh, involves a series of sugar rearrangements that one, regenerate RUBP, and two, accumulates excess carbon as three carbon sugars. This excess carbon can be stored in the chloroplast in the form of starch or exported from the chloroplast for transport to other parts of the plant. Photosynthesis, like all other complex metabolic reactions, is subject to regulation. In this case, the primary activator is light. Several key PCR cycle enzymes, including Rubisco, are light activated. This is one way of integrating photosynthesis with other aspects of metabolism, regulating changing levels of intermediates between light and dark periods, and competing demands for carbon with other cellular needs. Plants that utilize the PCR cycle exclusively for carbon fixation also exhibit a competing process of light and oxygen-dependent carbon dioxide evolution called photorespiration. 
The source of carbon dioxide is the photosynthetic carbon oxidation PCO cycle. The PCO cycle also begins with rubisco, which, in the presence of oxygen, catalyzes the oxidation as well as the carboxylation of ruby P. The product of ruby P oxidation is one molecule of 3PGA plus one two-carbon molecule phosphoglycolate. Phosphoglycolate is subsequently metabolized in a series of reactions that result in the release of carbon dioxide and the recovery of the remaining carbon by the PCR cycle. The role of the PCO cycle is not yet clear, although it has been suggested that it helps protect the chloroplast from photooxidative damage during periods of moisture stress, when the stomata are closed and the carbon dioxide supply is shut off. Chloroplasts also exhibit an oxidative pentose phosphate cycle, or OPPC, that potentially would lead to futile cycling of CO2. This is prevented by the differential light regulation of reductive and oxidative pentose phosphate cycles through the action of thioredoxin. Okay, good job. Let's do some questions. So, review the reactions of the photosynthetic carbon reduction cycle and show how a product is generated, the carbon is recycled to regenerate the acceptor molecule. Okay, well that's just copying the cycle. So, Let's see here. We would just basically draw the operation of PCR and OPPC, which is on page 145. So you've got CO2 that creates two molecules of PGA, um, which then allows two ATP to be utilized, creating two ADP that will have to be regenerated. That creates two molecules of 1,3-biphosphate PGA, which again, we need two NADPH to grab that uh, hydrogen from to produce two triose phosphates and two NADP NADPs, which will become uh, F6P, and then it splits. So in reaction one, that F6P then becomes R5P, and then using a little ATP gets regenerated into RuBP, and then cycles all over back into Rubisco, capturing CO2. Or we can go the photorespirative way, so that FC, F6P can be generated into a G6P and grab a hydrogen from an NADP. Uh, well, I'm sorry, this one goes the other direction. So NADP plus is reduced to NADPH oxidated to NADPH, which forms a 6P gluconate, and that 6P gluconate is oxidated using NADP+, goes to NADPH, which then creates a CO, two CO2 molecules before then generating R5P, add a little ATP, and you're back to Rubisco. So yeah, that one was just copying the biochemical cycle, so not terribly exciting. In what chemical form and where is energy put into the photosynthetic carbon reduction or PCR cycle? And what is the source of this energy? Okay, well, we already talked about that. Like, there are three different forms of ATP, ADP that have to get um, fussed with at any point of the cycle. And the source of this energy has to be the starch and the cellulose and the um, phosphate group that gets passed from bit to bit. 
right? So that phosphate group is what our actual energy source is, and the ATP comes from the adenosine phosphate getting moved from 3PG to its various forms. So same phosphate group, just getting cycled through. And that can come from the aminalization, it can come from the starches and sugars being metabolized, or it can come from that CO2. <laughs> so let's take a look at page. Oh my God, this is so slow. Uh, so on page 143, you have a really good example of the photorespiratory glycolate pathway. And you can see how CO2 is produced. You can also see how in the chloroplast, the PCR cycle is taking place inside the photorespiratory glycolate pathway. So the Ruby P oxygenase reaction is what is creating our phosphate group that gets passed around in the chloroplast. So 143 is a really good, I think that's the best example of like how you can see PCR within photorespirated glyco glycolate. And that 3PGA is what gets uh, dephosphorylated to glycolate. And that phosphorylated group is the thing that creates our ATP and then gets moved around from bit to bit. Um, yeah, so there's a glucose 6P that then gets passed around through the FB pace and SB pace and RU5P kinase which gets reduced and, and changed through the thioreduxin process which then triggers um, ATP consumption and uh, splitting off of that phosphorus group. Okay, and we talked a little bit about the Machelin-Menten kinetics. Um, autocatalytic, so the photosynthetic carbon reduction PCR cycle is said to be autocatalytic, and what does this mean and what of what advantage is it? Well, it recreates Ruby P, right? So because it's passing that phosphorus around over and over again, and because it's uh, funding itself through ATP usage, we get a Ruby P <coughs> at the end of the day that can become Rubisco and capture more carbon dioxide. Or not. Ruby P can go into the photorespiratory cycle, and if it's not energetically favorable or if it's not available to capture more CO2, well, it can just keep processing itself and creating that phosphorylation using oxygen or CO2. Describe the photorespiratory pathway. What is the relationship between photorespiration and photosynthesis? So Photorespiration is the whole thing, so it involves the glycolate pathway as well as the PCR pathway, and both of them require light. So there are parts of the glycolate pathway that are activated by photosynthetic light, and there are parts that are not. And the PCR gets its ATP split apart using 
light. Like the energy, the energy favorable bits that magnesium captures from the energy capture itself is the hydrolyzing. Because you know, anytime we add water, that's how we split atoms apart. So that energy capture um, from the water in cells is what spurs the split of the phosphorus off whatever whatever it's currently attached to. And that's the energetically favorable one is when it's attached to ATP and it gets cut off, <sighs> creates energy. Hmm. Debate the position that the oxygenase function of Rubisco is an evolutionary hangover. Okay, so the idea with this is that plants evolved when CO2 was high and O2 was low, and so they wouldn't be able to tell the difference between CO2 or O2 because evolutionary favorability didn't care, right? Like, if you could use both, great. Use both. You're not going to poison yourself. You're fine. O2 is less favorable, so it's harder for them to use it. So we should be favoring CO2. But in the early Earth atmosphere, it probably didn't matter. I don't really know why you would care about this necessarily um, as a hangover. I think it would be really important to think about what our rising CO2 levels from global warming or climate change would do in this case. So I'm going to change this question and let's say currently we have very high oxygen levels. So as CO2 increases in the atmosphere, we would expect plant growth to increase because the CO2 would be more energetically favored than the oxygen. I guess the photorespiration and production of O2, depending on light or dark glycolate reactions, would matter to us because the glycolate photorespiration may not be favored, so it may not be producing oxygen in that dark reaction, which means we would actually have less oxygen. So it seems like these that these these creatures like um, support positive feedback cycles. For carbon dioxide so oxygen is just not something that they it's not the rate limiting factor which might be interesting for us right because if the plants just start helping the production of co2 whoops it is also interesting that those stomata can be influenced by pollutants right so if we block stomata or if we burn stomata with our acid rain and they're not able to uh, absorb that carbon dioxide we may trigger a respiratory a photorespiratory response which would then produce these highly oxygenated species and it would have to self-select for oxygen it would be a consumer of oxygen again because it can't open its little little breath to get that carbon dioxide so it would be producing that oxygen and then respirating it through the cells um, as a you know as a makeshift carbon dioxide substitute which again wouldn't be very helpful for us I don't think um, but we would probably be long gone or very different as a species if we were to follow the same evolutionary patterns as the plants you know it would take us so many million millions of years to survive and evolve that the plants would be doing the same thing so how do plants overcome the potential for futile cycling of co2 in the chloroplasts so
So this happens because some cycles happen in the light and some cycles happen in the dark. So you have reductive light regulation and oxidative pentose phosphate cycles through thioredoxin happening inversely, whether it's light or dark. So there are light activated enzymes that trigger one or the other, and that's why they don't conflict. Okay. Very good. Um, so this is energy cons conservation and photosynthesis, a CO2 assimilation, uh, and we will be going into the biomechanics of allocation, translocation, and partitioning of photoassimilates in our next lesson.